I'm Joanne Wilson, and this is Positively Gotham Gal. Real, honest, and meaningful conversations with women entrepreneurs about their approach to life, business, and everything in between. For the next two weeks, we are spotlighting women hot on the campaign trail in local New York politics. Diana Florence has dedicated her entire career to public service, beginning as a prosecutor in the Manhattan's DA office 25 years ago. We got together over Zoom to talk about her candidacy for the upcoming DA elections and her plans to reform the office to better serve the people of New York. Hello. Hello. How are you? Welcome to the podcast. We are just going to basically chat. And I think one of the reasons I was really excited about having you on is that, you know, the elections are coming up. No one talks about it in New York that actually it's in June. Right. They certainly need to get the word out. I right, think right. that a lot of people don't understand the importance of the DA. Right. Just curious, like what brought you to public service in the first place? Going back a little further, my background in college was I got in to be a singer and <laughs> was a performer, but realized very quickly that the apex of my talent was getting into college. <laughs> so, you know, ultimately found myself in law school, but always wanted to do trial work. And so when I found myself as a defense attorney, you know, I mean, I think like every kid, I watched the law shows at that time. It was like Law and Order and L.A. Law. So that sort of appealed to me for the performer part of me. But then when I was in law school, I um, worked as a criminal defense attorney in our like student clinic. And I spent my junior year in Spain. So I speak Spanish. When I was working as a defense attorney in law school in North Carolina, they didn't provide interpreters. So I ended up being sort of a two in one for these people. And what I found was that as much as I could be really brilliant in finding a case that would be an exception, or I could be charming, and I could make a good argument. Ultimately, everything was at the mercy of the prosecutor. And that fascinated me because literally I had people who were something out of like literature, Les Miserables, right? Someone stealing a loaf of bread or stealing formula for their kid. And you could have the wrong prosecutor who could send them to jail. And that seemed just so inhumane. And I realized that if I wanted to actually make a difference, I thought it's not being a defense attorney, it's actually being on the inside and sort of bringing that humanity and compassion to the DA's office. So that's originally what attracted me. And since I was from New York, of course, I wanted to come back here. Of course. And I found myself working in the fall of 95 for Robert Morgenthau. Oh, wow. Amazing. And, you know, can you just talk a little bit about the importance of the DA's office in general. In many ways, I think it's a misunderstood position. Yeah. And if you ask the average person, it's been mythologized, as I said, on television, or maybe even going back further in Perry Mason, this sort of fight in the courtroom. And it is very widely misunderstood because really what the criminal law is, it goes to like sort of the basic of our society. Out of chaos, we needed laws in order to kind of make sure that we could keep our stuff and be safe. And criminal laws are really almost modeled in a way on the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill, thou shall not steal. And, you know, we made a decision early in civilization that there are certain acts that a person does that are so severe that we think that they can be punished by losing their liberty. So at its core, it's these very, very basic sort of wrongs that the DA is supposed to be enforcing so that we don't lose our temper and shoot somebody, right? That keeps us in check. That's kind of the general idea of the DA, but it's really become so much more. It's also one of those institutions that has been not only wildly misunderstood, but underutilized and utilized perhaps in the wrong way. And so do you have a different vision for what you think the DA's office is going to be? 
Yes. So what I see the DA's office, just to sort of say what the DA's office is now, is the old school idea of going after rapists and robbers and murderers. And those are all very important. But the criminal law can also be a source of empowerment. And it's for things that for too long we haven't thought about as criminal. I always use the example of stealing a smartphone. If I stole your smartphone, there would be no question that you could go to the police and I could be arrested for stealing that. It's a felony because smartphones are expensive. But In our society, until I got into this space a few years ago when I was leading the construction fraud task force, if you stole the equivalent in someone's wages, if an employer did not pay that person the equivalent of a $1,200 smartphone, that worker would be sent to the Department of Labor and would have no recourse in the criminal law. And when you think about it, as much as we all love our phones and are attached to our phones, the devastation of a person who loses even a week's worth of wages can be the difference between staying in their apartment or being a victim or feeding her family or going hungry. And so that's what I mean when I say the DA's office has been incredibly underutilized and has not really reached its full potential. The work that I did while I was there, especially in the latter half of my career, aimed to turn the model on its head and use it to protect everyday New Yorkers, not sort of keep the status quo of the powerful here and, you know, sort of the black and brown communities there. How many women are actually in the DA office? There's a lot of women. There's 1,500 people approximately in Manhattan DA's office. 500 are lawyers and 1,000 are non-legal staff. And I would say the female-male ratio is probably, you know, about half and half, but it's not a female culture. And I would say that it's a culture that's- Female DA. Yeah, there's never been a female DA and and the old school idea of the way the office even is organized, it hasn't changed since 1975. Did it get restructured in 1975? Yeah, so Morgenthau was elected in 1975, or actually the end of 74. He took office in 75 and restructured it. It was a very, very old school, top-down kind of place. And he was very revolutionary. He did things like create vertical prosecution, which was like one prosecutor stayed with the case from beginning to end. And it was organized based on the court system in 1975. And that was great. But here's the thing. New York is a very different place in 2020 than it was in 1975. And it's a different place than it was in, you know, 2015. Absolutely. It's been stagnant. What that means really for us is that there have been like the vast proportion of lawyers in the office are focused on low level crime and street crime, whereas you have proliferation of things like wage theft and landlords who commit major, major frauds and defrauding their tenants. You have companies that are stealing taxes and there's maybe one or two people doing that. And so what you have is this very strange distribution of enforcement and there's a big enforcement gap in the very places where we can actually make major difference. And so is that what you're talking about when you talk about your labor crime bureau? Yes. The labor crimes is really about a one-stop place for anyone who works, right? So it could be anyone from a construction worker to an office worker, a freelancer, anyone who works for a living, right? And until now, as I said, if you're a victim of sexual harassment, I think that's an example and talk about women. Right now, if you're a victim of sexual harassment, you're a middle-class person, maybe you know a lawyer, maybe you have a friend who knows a lawyer, you make various decisions with your friends and family and you might decide to file suit or you might not. Thing is, as women, I have a 19-year-old daughter, so I hope that her generation a little better than ours, but I will say that we've been socialized to accept a whole lot. So we don't actually always know (laughs) when something is simply civil and sexual harassment or actually has crossed the line into criminality. So one of the ideas behind the Labor Crimes Bureau is to say, 
we're here as a resource for anyone who has anything go on at work because everyone needs to be safe at work. And that means wage theft, but it also means health and safety and it means sexual harassment. And what we're going to do is not that we're going to suddenly criminalize things that aren't, but we're going to be a place that a person can come in and say, this is what's going on. Is this something that's a criminal investigation? And if it is, we do it, whether or not the person is a perfect victim and has never gotten a speeding ticket or, you know, frankly, has a criminal history. Like we need to stop with the idea of a perfect victim and just let people come in, have access. And then we fight alongside people, not for them, but we're the people's lawyer and we are there to figure out if they've been wronged. We need to provide cover too, because I know friends and colleagues of mine who've been in that position where they've been sexually harassed and sexually assaulted. Sometimes it's not a decision of whether it's criminal or civil, but like, well, if I do this, will my career get derailed? Completely. I mean, I think the other thing which you alluded to and said is that people aren't sure, you know, did I do something? Is this not right? Is it wrong? Is it okay? Has something crossed the line? I mean, even in terms of PDA saying, these are the 10 things that cross the line. And it's fascinating, even after the Me Too, you know, that we saw with Jeffrey Tubin. it's like, do you not think that was crossing the line? <laughs> what were they thinking, right? I would love to see just coming out of the DA's office, just more transparency about what the DA's office does. I mean, I hate to say a PR campaign, but I do feel that people really understand what they do, why you go there, what they're responsible for. Because I think most people really are kind of clueless when it comes to that. I can't tell you how many times in my almost 25-year career when I was working in the construction sector and working with tenants, right? People would come to my office and say, I never imagined I would even meet a prosecutor, much less be at the DA's office. Because again, I think there's a very law and order idea of what a DA is supposed to do. We're supposed to put the mugger in jail. That's the old cool idea. And the reality is jail isn't even necessarily a default. It shouldn't be a default in 2020. There's a lot of reasons people commit crimes and even talking about street crimes for a second. Sometimes people commit street crimes because of poverty. Sometimes they do it out of malice. Sometimes they do it out of mental illness. Sometimes they do it out of desperation. And Sometimes if it's a violent crime, there should be jail, but sometimes there should also be other ideas. And what we've done for too long is just kind of approach it like a factory, like, oh, right. like one trick wonder. Absolutely. I just want to take that another level. I mean, given this summer with all the upheaval and the response in terms of cases of police brutality across our nation, how do you see the role, if you were the DA, in reforming the police? I hate this concept, which is, you know, get rid of the police, right? I think that they chose the wrong words for that. But I do think police reform is a very different way to look at that. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I think that for too long, there has been this culture that accountability only applies to certain people and certain groups. So that if you're a police officer, if you're a millionaire like Jeffrey Epstein, frankly, our president, you have a different level of accountability than if you or I do something wrong. That's wrong. And so when it comes to police, I think a lot of the really high profile sort of abuses we saw captured on camera, it's not a mystery that everyone has a video camera attached to their phone. And yet you had police continually violating the law, not all police, but certain bad 
police that were doing bad stuff. And the reality was they did that because it was a culture of impunity. They never imagined that they would be held accountable. So the thing that you have to do, and I've written this on my website, is you have to start by acknowledging that there is a problem. And the way you actually start to attack the problem is, yes, you have prosecutors devote their resources and you create a unit that does police accountability. But what I will tell you is you have to have the information. And I know in in listening to you, Joanne, like people don't trust government anymore and they're not going to come to the DA's office and say this happens. I mean, I'm not so sure people are trusting of anyone in government, you know, even the DA, even the police. There has been such upheaval from Trump in the last three plus years that it's almost like he has so owned the narrative Yes, <laughs> that it just gives everyone such anxiety that they're very cautious of anybody. And then when you see these documentaries and films coming out about going back to like the Chicago 8th that just came out or, you know, the Vietnam documentary that Ken Burns did. And you're just like, no wonder nobody trusts the government. Right. And frankly, it's on us in the government to change that. It's not on the people. And the way we do that, frankly, is sort of the technique that I patented when I headed the task force. I left my office and I went places where people were. So that meant a community board meeting, an OSHA training. If a witness wanted to tell me or I learned through a community-based organization that a worker was having a problem, I went to Panera Bread at 7 a.m. and met them for coffee because the reality is it's on us to make people comfortable. So pivoting back, to police, the way we do that is we in New York have a really great model. We have something called the Civilian Complaint Review Board, the CCRB. It's independent from the DA, it's independent from the police, and people can go there and make complaints. The problem with the CCRB is they don't have a whole lot of power. And when they find that something might be criminal, they have to refer it back to the police, which makes no sense because the police are the very people who would be committing the crime. So one of my ideas to fixing that is to have a partnership directly with the DA's office, with the CCRB, with every case that comes in. Once again, just like sexual harassment, every single thing that someone complains about at CCRB is not going to be criminal. Sometimes it may be completely unfounded, but we're the lawyers and we know the law. We can help guide them and say, yes, this is, no, this isn't. And we can be smarter and we can get the information. And then it's incumbent upon us as the DA, not only to do the investigation, but to be transparent about it. We've gotten 500 referrals. We've 200 of them referred back to disciplinary, you know, police, 300 of them we did, you know, 200 of them were we went to trial, whatever it is. And we need to put that right out on our website and publish it. And so people can say, you know what, not only are we doing something, but we also send the message to that swath of police that are abusing their authority, that it's not going to be tolerated. I can tell you that model worked really well in the construction industry because I would find I would go after, you know, an entrenched fraud, like in the materials testing industry. I did a big case where they were faking the concrete test strength. New World Trade Center and the Second Avenue Subway and Yankee Stadium, all these major New York landmarks. And they were just faking the test. And it was an entrenched practice that had kind of grown up for years and years and years. The minute we brought charges, we went after the CEO and we got convictions. Not only did the industry take notice, we were then able to go to the buildings department and change the building code to make sure we closed a loophole that was allowing some of the fraud to happen. It's the same concept in construction, in police, anything that I would call a crime of power. If you show the powerful that there's going to be enforcement, they change their calculus. Right. I think that the powerful 
you know, unfortunately get away with more. We even look at the woman who called out the guy in Central Park, right? You're a hundred percent right. And I would say in the case of Amy Cooper, the woman in Central Park, yeah. what was even more galling about that was that it was six weeks after the video surfaced on Twitter that charges were brought. And the thing is, you cannot have someone in the DA's office or in any enforcement capacity where they need to sort of get a, do a survey or gauge public opinion. That was so clearly wrong. We all saw it. We all saw it. And it took them that long. And that erodes public trust as well. Yeah. So I'm curious about the technology piece in regards to the DA office. I think one of the things that's happened over the past couple of decades is that technology has moved so quickly. It has taken major jumps over what's going on in government. And how do you, is running the DA, have some kind of back-end technology? that connects with the community instead of having to go to, you know, a local high school and scream that they can, you know, give you information through technology, put something into a system instead of having to call the uh, 411 number where nobody really pays any attention, which has happened to me. I used to call them every day over something. And then finally, I just called the local police department and said, this is utterly ridiculous. Right. So under the heading that things haven't changed since 1975, (laughs) the office still does hotlines, like phone numbers. I mean, this is something out of the 90s. Do you even use your phone to make phone calls anymore? I don't want to make a phone call. I just want to text and get together. Exactly. And so it's interesting because five years ago, no, six years ago, sorry, I did a very sort of groundbreaking case involving a 22-year-old kid that died because he went to work and did everything he was supposed to. He was buried alive at the former site of the Pastis restaurant. He was a construction worker. And it was a very, very blatant criminal violation. And in the course of investigating, because he was undocumented and because there were so many workers, I gave out my cell phone to the family. And what were they doing? They were texting me on my WhatsApp. I had a WhatsApp number, you know? And so suddenly it became very clear to me in that case that if we wanted to really get the source of information, we needed to have an ability for people to text us. So to this day, and this is not groundbreaking, by the way, but it it doesn't get done. But I was able to get a WhatsApp number. I was able to kind of maneuver. That was always my specialty. I maneuvered and got a WhatsApp number. And I can tell you to this day, I don't believe there's any other part of the office that has a ability to text. So to your point, yes, it's weird that with all the technological advances, and certainly there are many that have helped investigations, that something as basic as that is being able to text a photo of unsafe work condition or your paycheck that shows that you were only paid for 10 hours. These are things that are basic that we should be doing and are really just small, but really can be transformative changes that I would do when I hopefully win. (laughs) Technology and things that could be done. I think about A-B testing when startups begin, because if the city of New York, everyone knew that there's this new thing, you know, you're the DA and you can get on and you can write a note of what has happened and someone will respond to you. You can figure out how to restructure the DA office based on what the needs were really of the society and the community. 
Yeah. And I would argue that not only is that right, but you don't even have to use technology for that. A lot of the work that we did in the task force was literally just leaving our office for too long. The DA's office in Manhattan, but everywhere has been a very sort of top down ivory tower idea. We sit at our desk and we wait for things to come to us. So the example of the concrete falsifications at those major landmarks, that is a case I did 12 years ago. And it was something that was so entrenched that it it didn't even just extend to one company. It was throughout the industry. Now, turning that on its head, six years later, when I'm going out into the community, I'm going to consulates and worker centers and unions and all these places. I am now learning about things that are happening as they're going on so that we were able to attack things. And like you say, see patterns, because if I go to an OSHA training, you know, uptown versus midtown or have... Right. But you learn certain commonalities, like you say, and you're right. You use the criminal law, which, as I said, is such a powerful tool. And we've been using it only to keep people down and not to actually build people up. Yeah. And the other thing I'll say about that is why it's so powerful is not only that you get justice and that's a nice ideal, but you can see how it literally when I did Carlos's case and we went and got a conviction against the developer who was developing the site, who never thought they would have any accountability, that day when we got the conviction for manslaughter for an undocumented immigrant, the entire courtroom and his family, their faces, I'll never forget it because they suddenly saw that the government wasn't against them. And it has ripples beyond that case. And that's why it's so exciting when we use the criminal law the right way and why I'm so motivated to not only run for DA and win the office, but also to sort of, you know, preach the gospel of the DA is perhaps the most important elected position, certainly on the local level. How do you get New Yorkers to feel that this new blood of a woman overseeing the DA office is going to reimagine and put into place how we as a community are all represented equally and there's shifts in the police department so that when there is someone who's mentally deranged and having problems, we're not sending someone over with a gun. We're sending over police without a gun with social workers so that if anything goes crazy, at least there's someone there to sort of diffuse the situation. Yeah, I think it starts simply with seeing people as people, which sounds like such a sort of non-sentence. But it but- isn't. It is straight <laughs> on. And I will say that the office for too long has operated like a factory. And instead of making chairs or, you know, popsicles, they're making cases. They're not seeing it as there's victims that are important and there are the accused. And you have to balance both of those people's situations to come up with the right solution and seeing it as not something that we're just processing, but that we're invested in. So I think part of it being a mom, being a woman, I inherently, when I dealt with Carlos's case, you know, the undocumented man I mentioned. When I saw what happened to Carlos, I immediately saw my kids. I saw myself at 22 and me listening to my boss and not you know, being too afraid to say anything. And when we stop thinking of cases as just commodities and we start remembering it's people, that's how we begin to reform things. So even some of the things, Joanne, that you just mentioned, like rethinking our response to mental health. The reason that we've had issues is because we're so wedded to the idea that police do everything. 
happening. And we need police and we need to have a trusting relationship with police, but they're not the appropriate people to be handling most mental health situations. If there's a dangerous situation, sure, there might be a point where a police officer gets involved, but even then we need to make sure that they're properly trained. And then on every single shift, there's police officers who understand just like we do that with sex crimes and domestic violence and how to handle those. So what I would say in terms of, you know, being a woman and transforming the office, I think it's both having the compassion and the sort of desire to really make sure that not just me, but everyone in that office sees people's humanity. And also it's about understanding that the criminal law, just because we always did it this way, doesn't mean we have to. Just because wage theft was always civil, never should have been civil. It should have always been criminal. We need those kind of thoughts. That's what I propose is using the criminal law the way to really right size. I think, again, I think our government, because I think if we start with the criminal justice system and we make it about serving people and empowering them and giving them all access, whether you're a wealthy person or you live in NYCHA, that's where we start to really rebuild for our entire city and we heal. Sitting at home at COVID, I think one of the silver linings is that we're all really paying attention. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think there's a lot of opportunity, but it's important that people, you know, COVID will end, right? I hope sooner rather than later, but it will. Oh my God, let's please hope sooner than later. (laughs) But we need to make sure that we don't forget our essential workers and we don't forget the gains and the realizations that we've seen of the inequalities and that we are all committed to making sure that the criminal justice system is fair. It also means though, that even if you do commit a crime, You know, most crimes are not going to be life sentences and we need to have a way to also welcome people back. And that means starting, right? So that even a 20 year old who does a gun crime and has to go to prison, we need to, before he ever steps into that cell, you know, have him have an intake. I call it pre-entry where we match him with an apprenticeship program, either in construction or the culinary arts or whatever. So that on the other side of prison, he knows that he's paid his debt and now he's back and we're going to welcome him back because if we don't do that up until now, what we've done is we've just sort of said a whole key. They're disposable. We yeah, don't care. Yeah. We don't care. And we've thrown out the key on these people's lives. And you know, if you save one life, you save the world. But our criminal justice system is not about reform. It's about just locking the key. And what's the point of that? You know, what's incredible too, is that we're so fortunate to live, I believe in the greatest city in the world. We have everything here. The resources are all here. Even in this terrible time, these not-for-profits, these amazing organizations, one I'll plug is Pathways to Apprenticeship, which is for the construction industry mm-hmm. and really is done amazing work with justice-impacted people. And the thing I'll say is that we have this, but the problem is for too long, we've been so wedded to the idea that you commit a crime, you go to jail, that's it. And there's no coming back from that. And even in the more recent time where we talk about re-entry, we've been talking about it as if it's something that we suddenly realize when someone's getting out of jail six months, a year beforehand, whereas it needs to be part of the planning. I mean, I always say that if I were going on a trip and I were going to Florida, I wouldn't buy a one-way ticket. You have to have plans to leave on the way back and have something on the other side. So it's the same thing. We need to plan for people and understand that, yes, there has to be accountability. Jail, of course, We're never getting rid of jail. There are going to be some crimes that's needed, but we also need to understand that these are people that are committing crimes. And most of the time it's out of circumstance and not out of being evil. If we take a look at the 
up in the cloud, looking down, it's about economy. You think about the way that the money is spent. If it was right. spent differently, which is what you're talking about, we right. would actually be spending less on jail and we would have more GNP because these people are going back to work in the community. And not only do I agree 100% with that, but I'd also add that there's a lot of money that we're not collecting because yeah. of corruption in the white collar world. And the white collar world, they're not, you know, it's not a stupid decision to incorporate fraud in your business model if you know there won't be enforcement. Oh. So. It's smart, frankly. But if you know that there's going to be enforcement of tax crimes, of insurance crimes, of wage theft, then that's all money that comes back to our coffers and we can spend it on things like pre-entry programs, mental health, addiction, homelessness. These are things that we can actually fund. I always say, I'm not sure we have to raise taxes. What we have to do is enforce the laws that are there. And then let's see, let's do that for a few years. And then if we still need to, then fine. But I think there's so much potential if we actually put the resources into enforcement and the resources are there, we just have not focused. We've been too comfortable in the status quo of keeping the enforcement only focused on black and brown communities. I totally agree. And that is a wrap because that is exactly it. And I do hope that I can see you running our DA because I really like what you stand for. And I completely agree. It needs to be changed. It's time for change and to rethink of how we live as individuals individuals and people in this city. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the opportunity to speak with you. No, this was great. Thank you so much for coming on. If you'd like to learn more about her campaign, you can visit her website at dianaforda.com. F-O-R-D-A dot com.